0: blog talk radio you are now listening to true murder the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK every week another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history, True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zufansky. Good evening. A deeply reported, riveting account of a cold case murder in Los Angeles unsolved until DNA evidence implicated a shocking suspect, a female detective within the LAPD's own ranks. On February 24, 1986, 29-year-old newlywed Sherry Rasmussen was murdered in the home she shared with her husband, John. The crime scene suggested a ferocious struggle, and police initially assumed it was a burglary gone awry. Before her death, Sherry had confided to her parents that an ex-girlfriend of John's, a Los Angeles police officer, had threatened her. The Rasmussen's urged the LAPD to investigate the ex-girlfriend, but the original detectives only pursued burglary suspects, and the case went cold. DNA analysis did not exist when Sherry was murdered. Decades later, a swab from a bite mark on Sherry's arm revealed her killer was in fact female, not male. A DNA match led to the arrest and conviction of veteran LAPD detective Stephanie Lazarus, John's one-time girlfriend. The Lazarus files delivers the visceral experience of being inside a real-life murder mystery. McGough reconstructs the lives of Sherry, John, and Stephanie, the love triangle that led to Sherry's murder, and the homicide investigation that followed. Was Stephanie protected by her fellow officers? What did the LAPD know, and when did they know it? Are there other LAPD cold cases with a police connection that remain unsolved? The book that we're featuring this evening is *The Lazarus Files*, a cold case investigation, with my special guest, journalist and author Matthew McGough. Welcome to the program and thank you very much for agreeing to this interview, Matthew McGough.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for joining me. Incredible. I, I. Call it an old time, almost like a classic true crime book. Incredible detail, and congratulations on just an amazing uh, edge of your seat book. Let's uh, thank you so much. You're welcome. Tell us how you became involved with this book and this case. How you came to be the author of the Lazarus Files.
1: Well, for me, the story began in uh, 2008, a year before Stephanie was arrested, uh, when coincidentally I interviewed her uh, for a book that I was planning to write about art theft, which was her beat as an LAPD detective before uh, – or at least up until the time that she was arrested. So I had a fairly innocuous encounter with, uh, with Stephanie uh, when she was still a detective in good standing. Uh, And then it was about a year after that that she was arrested for having committed this murder 20-some years before. So I was really on the story from day one just because uh, I knew who she was. And I immediately just had this curiosity uh, and desire to, first of all, uh, know whether or not it could possibly be true that uh, this uh, female police detective who I met with, could possibly have been harboring a secret like this for her whole career. And the more I learned about
0: the story, the more I wanted to know. Certainly, certainly. Very interesting first meeting with Stephanie. Very interesting. Let's go, as you write in the book, to February 24th, 1986. You take us right to the crime scene scene. Uh, Tell us a little bit about, before we do that, to introduce a little bit about uh, Van Nuys, where Van Nuys, California, what section of Los Angeles is this, and tell us a little bit about Sherry Rasmussen and, uh, and her husband, John, and the Balboa townhouses. Tell us a little bit about them before we talk about what happened February 24th, 1986. Who were they?
1: Of course. Of course. Uh, Sherry Rasmussen was a 29 year old hospital nurse, a very accomplished woman. Uh, although she was still in her twenties, she had, uh, uh, really had a pretty meteoric, uh, career, uh, as a, uh, a nurse, uh, worked at UCLA medical center and then Glendale Adventist medical center and was running their, um, uh, critical care operations, which would include like intensive care, uh, unit and, uh, she had a specialty in cardiac medicine. She was really quite extraordinary. Uh, skipped multiple grades when she was uh, a young woman, graduated from college. I, I think began college at age 16. Uh, so she was really sort of a high flyer. Um, Sherry and John had been married for only three months uh, when she was killed. Uh, John had attended UCLA. Uh, and worked as a engineer in the computer field uh, back in the mid-'80s. And uh, as, a, as, a, as a couple, they lived in, uh, as you said, uh, Van Nuys, which is kind uh, sort of a middle-class uh, area of the San Fernando Valley uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, and they were, uh, you know, where, where the murder occurred and where they lived was a condominium complex called the, Bal- the uh, Balboa Townhomes, uh it was somewhere where Sherry had lived uh by herself and then with a roommate for several years before uh, she met John. They became engaged and, and he moved in with her.
0: Now tell us about February twenty fourth, nineteen eighty six. You went in, you introduced in the book that John had left work at seven twenty that morning and so you describe him as he approaches When he comes back from work, Uh, tell us what, as you write in the book, what he encounters when he comes home, according to him.
1: Yeah, everything in the book I should I should note is based on uh,
0: either witness
1: testimony that uh, was given during the trial or statements that were given to the LAPD or or interviews that I that I personally conducted. So according to that source material, uh, John uh, uh, left for work. It was a Monday uh, Sherry uh, called in sick to work uh, And stayed home that day So he left her uh, in bed When he left for work that morning And when he came home that evening uh, uh, When he pulled up uh, to their, their condo which had a, It was a split-level condo So there was a, uh, a garage A two-car garage on the uh, ground level And then the uh, first floor of the condo Was uh, a living room kitchen and dining room on the second floor and the bedrooms on the third floor. So, uh, when he pulled up, uh, the first thing that he noticed that was unusual was that their garage door was open, uh, and that Sherry's car was not there. Um, so he, he went upstairs, uh, discovered uh, her body called nine one one and the police arrived shortly thereafter.
0: Tell us about his demeanor, and uh, you introduce important characters in this. The detectives in charge um, soon after arrived, Detectives Lyle Mayler, Mayer pardon me, and Steve Hooks. Um, tell us about the demeanor of, of John and also what the police find in their run-through, yeah. or the, as you call it, the walk-through initially.
1: Yeah, well, uh, according to, again, testimony and uh, statements given by uh, the paramedics who reported to the scene and the, the, patrol, the, the patrol officers who were initially um, directed to the scene by the 911 operator, uh, John was very distraught, um, as would be expected, uh, coming home and finding, uh, finding his wife uh, uh, dead on the floor. Uh, the uh, the the condo, the living room, which is where her body was found, appeared to have been uh, ransacked. So uh, when the detectives who were assigned to the case and you had their names right, it was uh, uh, Detective Lyle Mayer was uh, the lead investigator. He was the more senior um, detective assigned to the case. And then his uh, partner assigned to assist was a younger a somewhat less experienced detective named Steve Hooks. Uh, They arrived at the condo within an hour or so after John placed his call, uh, had some initial conversations with him and based on his demeanor, I think uh, concluded uh, fairly quickly that uh, uh, he seemed much more likely to be a witness than a suspect, that he did not have any direct involvement in the murder. Uh, And so uh, it was necessary for them to interview him. That happened a little bit later on that evening. Uh, but the detectives, based on their initial impression of the crime scene, the fact that Sherry's uh, car, a BMW, was missing, um, and just the condition of the living, ro- living room—there were some. Uh, uh, there was a drawer of a end table that was pulled and dumped out, as if someone was possibly looking for valuables uh there was some stereo equipment that had been uh, removed from a entertainment wall unit um, and placed uh near the front door inside the condo as you know which to the detectives suggested that uh Sherry may have been home alone burglars had entered on un- knowing that someone was home and that she had surprised them and the confrontation had turned violent, and then the, the, the burglars had uh, had fled. So their their initial impression, based on John's demeanor and the crime scene, was that this was most likely a burglary gone wrong.
0: As you write in here, you you incredible detail, and with the incredible access that you had to everything and all the reports. But you also include the procedures that were supposed to be followed at the time by detectives, especially in a homicide case. And you talk about some of the things that uh, were done and were not done. Um, Tell us, as you do, about because they thought initially that this was a burglary, how did the detectives conduct the the interview with John? And how did they conduct the rest of the – initially that – their investigation how did they proceed based on that yeah well
1: feel free to interrupt me because
0: we're talking about a
1: 30-year investigation so we'll we'll just go a little bit chronologically At, at the beginning uh you know obviously homicide is the most serious uh crime that exists and uh uh you know the LAPD has a lot of policies and procedures that have developed over the years, sort of best practices that uh, detectives are, are supposed to follow. And, and there were several things that the uh, detectives uh, did in 1986 that they did well, that allowed the case to be solved. And not just the detectives, but uh, forensic science personnel from the LAPD crime lab, uh, which is called scientific investigation division. Uh, the people who were there to collect uh, Things like fingerprints and uh, uh, blood stains, and uh, you know, also uh, similar personnel who work for the coroner's office uh, there to to collect evidence. But uh, the only interviews that the detectives uh, conducted in 1986, in the wake of the murder, that were actually tape recorded, uh, the way that uh, um, you know they they had the ability to tape record. Uh, all interviews, um, and it, I think today it's recognized as as a best practice to uh, uh, to do that because there's no statute of limitations in homicide. You don't know how long uh, it's going to take to solve a case, and it's very very common for cases to be transferred uh, between uh, detectives, police divisions, and for you know detectives uh, eventually retire. So. There's very good reasons for things to be done by the book because it gives uh, later detectives the best possible chance to solve the crime. So where the shortfalls exist is in uh, what was documented back in 1986 and uh, conversations that those initial detectives had with people who had information to suggest that it may not have been a burglary, which was their primary theory. Uh, possibly a more personal motive. Uh, but on paper, there's very, very little uh, indication that any of those conversations uh, ever took place.
0: What you're talking, what you're referring to for our audience and for those that read the book is that you're talking about the homicide division having something called a murder book and also something you call short for chronological is chrono. So what what you're referring to is that they're the the protocol is that that they would have all kinds of labeling as to when it was the questioning had been done, who had done it, uh, and what was contained in in that in those conversations and in those interviews. And that was not as you write in this book, that's one of the features of what happened in nineteen eighty six and because they were supposed to do follow ups, that's some of the things that were very lacking in terms of what they did in 86.
1: Yeah, there's, there's, there's gaps there. Um, uh, again, my, my goal in researching and reporting the story was to try to interview, um, anyone who had sort of lived through the experience. I'm 43 years old, uh, right now. I was 11 years old when this murder occurred, uh, not living in Los Angeles. So, uh, when I came to the case, uh, you know, beginning in 2009, after Stephanie was arrested, uh, my strategy for trying to get at the truth was to try to speak to people who actually lived through it and try to get their own uh, recollections uh, down so that I could write about the story as, as as clearly as possible through the eyes of the people who, um, who were actually there at the time. So uh yeah, you're, you're correct. The, the, the murder book, for your listeners who are unaware, is, is basically, to just demystify it, it's, it's a three-ring binder, essentially. Or if a case is very uh, uh, complex or goes on for long enough, it may spill over to multiple three-ring binders. But it's a, it's a compendium of uh, all the reports uh, and information generated over the life of a homicide case. From the moment that the uh, uh, the phone rings at the the homicide table that there's a uh, you know that a, a murder or a, a dead body has been found or, or reported uh, through the verdict, however many years later that is. and yeah, the murder book would include pretty much everything that is known about a case with the exception of who did it, uh, which is point of the investigation so um, there's one murder book for each homicide that is committed uh, uh, the most important document in the murder book is the chronological log uh, which is referred to in shorthand as the chrono and that's sort of the, uh, the running uh, log of every um, investigative action that detectives take over the course of the entire case so uh it'll begin with uh the notification that i just described that it, at this time and this date uh detectives were notified that there was a homicide reported at so-and-so address and detective so-and-so and so-and-so reported to the crime scene at this time and date and and then it goes from there and it should include everything because the purpose of this document is to uh allow anyone other than the original detectives to pick it up however much uh, uh you know at, at any point later in the case even months or years or decades later and be able to understand this is what has been uh done to this point uh This is, you know, these are the scientific reports uh, or or tests that have been completed. Uh, These witnesses have been spoken to. This is, you know, maybe a short summary of this is what the witness reported, their contact information. If their name is John Smith, you would hope to have a, a date of birth and an address because you can just imagine picking up a murder book or a chrono 30 years later and trying to, figure out if a witness named John Smith in 1986 is still alive or where they might be today so it's it's a crucial um, it's a crucial document it's, it's, it's the lens through which all later detectives look at the case so uh, one of the features of uh, Sherry Rasmussen's case that is troubling is uh, that there appears to be gaps in this original chrono, uh, I interviewed several people who um, were adamant that they had had conversations with the detectives back then, and there's no record in uh, in the chrono or in the murder book that those conversations took place.
0: Let's get back to the investigation that is just hours old, um, and you introduce— Again, very important characters in this, Sherry Rasmussen's father, Nels, and the mother, Loretta, and the sister, Connie. And uh, Sherry is killed, but they are not notified by John for many, many hours later. In fact, they're not notified by anyone except uh, John's father, Richard. What do the police... When we talk about uh, the police and the police response, uh, normally the husband becomes, for lack of any other suspects, becomes a suspect, and they do question him, uh, despite th- that person might be grieving. Let's talk about the, the questioning, the interview with him, and also the polygraph test that he was uh, asked to, to take.
1: Sure. Uh, yeah. So moving from the police procedural stuff to the more sort of human, you know, relationship elements of the story, uh, you know, it's not uncommon in many families or, or couples or whatever. There there there's tension between the in laws and uh uh I don't think Nels Rasmussen is the only father to want to have only the best uh for his daughter in terms of uh of a son in law. But uh Sherry and John's relationship, uh uh you know, they met and fell in love fairly quickly in the soon after they met they were a couple uh and then within a year or so of meeting they were engaged to marry and then six months later they were married so it all happened uh pretty quickly for them uh as a couple and there was some tension between uh sherry's father nels and uh, john's father uh richard that you know goes back to uh well before the murder so that's one of the elements that uh possibly exacerbated things after the murder, that there just wasn't a lot of, uh, like, a baseline of trust uh, between these people who were thrust into this uh, tragic situation, not by choice at all, but just by uh, virtue of what happened. So uh, for the Rasmussens, one of the immediate frustrations for them uh, uh was that they were not notified of the murder either by the police or by John himself, but that it was John's father who called the Rasmussons, uh very late that night. Uh, Nels and Loretta, Sherry's parents, lived in Tucson, Arizona, uh, where they had raised Sherry and her two sisters. And by the time they received notification that Sherry had been killed, it was uh, already too late at night for them to uh, get a flight to los angeles the last flight from tucson had already left for the day so uh they did not arrive on the scene until mid-morning uh, the following morning um you know well i would say maybe 18 hours after sherry's body uh was discovered by john and uh that becomes significant because as i described a little bit earlier the detectives really uh sort of made up their minds uh, almost on the night of the murder based on their initial impressions of john and the crime scene that this is what had occurred that it had, it sherry had been interrupted a burglary struggled with the burglar things had escalated and that it had ended in 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 her murder before the burglars fled so uh uh When the Rasmussons arrived the next day, uh, they had information from Sherry uh, over the previous several months going back, you know, six to nine months before her murder. She had been reporting to uh, her parents a series of troubling encounters and incidents with an ex-girlfriend of John, uh, who was a Los Angeles police officer. And Sherry was a fairly private person. Uh, She did not talk very openly, even with some of her closest girlfriends, about the issues that were going on in her marriage. But she had told her parents and several of her friends different pieces of uh, this sort of uh, growing problem with uh, John's ex-girlfriend, who Sherry felt uh, harassed and threatened by uh, there was an incident where the woman had gone to Sherry's workplace and uh, told her that uh, if this marriage doesn't work out, I'm going to pick up the pieces. And a couple of times Sherry had told her parents that the girlfriend had, her ex-girlfriend had come to their condo uninvited. Uh, John had repeatedly promised that he would not have any more contact with her, but Sherry told her parents that John didn't seem willing to, uh, stand up to this ex-girlfriend, police officer, and tell her once and for all that he had uh, moved on from her and to leave him and his wife alone. So, there was a big gap in terms of the information that uh, Sherry's parents uh, had, and what the detectives, uh, assume, you know, believed happened, uh, and that was all within the first day of the investigation. What's interesting? The, uh... Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. I think you had also said the uh, uh, John's polygraph, uh, which is right. true. Uh, that comes in a little bit later. Do you want me to say a little something about that? Or I don't mean well, to interrupt we'll your talk question? About it.
0: We'll, we'll talk about it later then. Um, I wanted to mention before we get too far that for detectives, I guess, looking at cases today, they look at things differently. But at that time, they thought it was a burglary, and they also. We got to say that Sherry was beat so bad that on her face that initially everyone thought, even as you write, an experienced coroner investigator, did not recognize that she had not been shot in the face. She had actually been beaten, and so th- yeah. those were the extent of, his, very... extent of her injuries. But also that, as we mentioned in the introduction, there was something that under when, when they did the autopsy. There was something noticed other than the bullet wounds, and we got to talk about the ballistics again. Talk about what kind of bullets were found and what kind of make of, of gun, and, and what that what that relevance was. But that tell us about the bite mark discovery, and this sort of the police overlooking any possibility of a personal connection to this murder.
1: Yeah, it was evident from the. Uh the state of the crime scene and Sherry's injuries that it was a very, uh, uh, protracted, ferocious, uh, fight that, uh, culminated in her death that really, she fought for her life, uh, for a very long time. Uh, the fight, uh, began on the second floor of the condo. Uh, there were, there were at least, uh, two uh, shots that were fired, uh, that, uh, passed through a balcony, uh, a glass door uh, to the uh, balcony near the kitchen, uh, shattering that window. And then it seemed uh, likely that Sherry had fled down the stairs, either to the front door or to uh, an alarm panel that was on the wall near the front door and uh, evidently didn't make it uh, to either one. Uh, the fight resumed in the front entryway Uh, There was blood and uh, fingernails that were found on the floor, again, indicative of a a very intense struggle, Um, a bloody handprint on the wall in that same area. And then uh, into the living room, which is where her body was found, uh, there was a shattered, uh, like a heavy ceramic uh, vase that was on the floor that uh, Sherry had been struck with. in the head most likely knocking her out and uh before she was shot uh three times uh at very close range in the chest uh which were any of the three shots would have been fatal uh so it was uh it was a very protracted uh fight and then what ends up being the key evidence in the case and so key that if uh it didn't exist I think it's fair to question whether or not the case ever would have been solved. If everything had played out the way that it did, except for this one uh, piece of evidence, it may be that uh, the Rasmussen's would still be waiting for justice to this day. Uh, But yeah, when John came home and uh, first encountered Sherry's body, uh, her facial injuries were, a uh, severe and obviously disturbing uh, to him as her husband. And it was evident to him that she was, she had passed. Uh, so uh, he, he, he immediately called 911. And uh, it, I think the, the sight of her was too disturbing to him to, uh, to look at her for very long. And one of the things that he overlooked and that the paramedics who first arrived, again, they were focused on uh, checking her vital signs. And then once they determined that, uh, uh, you know, once they pronounced her dead, their primary responsibility shifted from saving life to preserving uh, the crime scene and evidence of what clearly was uh, a crime had been committed. So uh, neither John nor the paramedics who initially Uh, examined Sherry's body, noticed that on the inside of her left forearm, uh, she had a very pronounced bite mark. Uh, And it it seems possible, maybe likely that during this intense struggle she had with her assailant, uh, Sherry may have gotten control of the gun at one point. And uh, the assailant may have bitten her on the arm to make her drop the gun Uh, And that would have happened before she was uh, knocked out and incapacitated and and executed. So uh, it was not until later on that night uh, after John had been interviewed when the detectives were uh, back at the crime scene with the various forensic science personnel that one of them noticed that there was a, this bite mark on, uh, on her arm. And, you know, to be fair to the detectives, uh, And the other uh, personnel who were at the crime scene were talking about, you know, February 1986 when this murder occurred. So there was no such thing at that time as DNA evidence Uh, detectives uh, or the crime lab, you know, was it had been a practice for quite a while at that time to collect blood evidence, saliva, semen, uh, and to be able to determine whether. For what a uh, blood type a person has you know ABO uh, right. different percentages of the population have different blood types so if, if you have a very rare if you know your victim is blood type a and you find blood type O at the scene there's a good chance that that could be the suspect's blood and then if you have a suspect and you get him and you uh, test his blood and it's type O that that can you know corroborate or you uh, eliminate someone as a potential donor and a potential suspect. So yeah, these detectives did not have the benefit of DNA back then. I uh, want to make that clear that, um, you, you know, when I interviewed them, they made the point that if they did have DNA back then, it they, they would have solved it sooner. And I can't dispute that. Uh, but at that, at that point in time, uh, that's what they were working with. Uh, so it was later that night that the, Uh, The bite mark uh, uh, wound on her arm was uh, swabbed by a coroner's criminalist uh, forensic uh, technician, and uh, eventually uh, it was stored as evidence in in a freezer in the basement of the morgue, uh, downtown L.A., and uh, stayed there for the better part of two decades uh, while science uh, slowly caught up to it.
0: When we're talking about solving a case let's talk about the questioning of John. Despite the polygraph as you write, that they said he was too emotional. He starts sobbing. Uh, You questioned some of the questions that he was asked in that polygraph. Uh, Then they they said they made a note that maybe he could do a, a polygraph later but then there was another note and a follow up that said no they weren't going to do that. But I wanna just get to the, the the basic question. When they asked if there was any reason for this, could he think of anyone that might want to do harm to his wife? did he have any ex girlfriends? She have any girl boyfriends in the clo when he was asked that kind of question, what was John's response in
1: nineteen eighty six? Uh I'll try to paraphrase from memory, but I should note, uh, you know, everything in the book is, is directly from uh, transcripts and, uh, you know, recordings. So the conversation you're referring to, uh, I I have heard the, uh, it it was tape recorded at the time and I've listened to it and, you know, uh, uh, wrote it verbatim in the book. Uh, But to paraphrase, uh, John was asked during his initial interview with Lyle Mayer, the night of the murder, if, Sherry had any problems with uh, an ex-boyfriend or if he had any problems with an ex-girlfriend that detectives should know about. And uh, despite all of the incidents and issues that Sherry had recounted to uh, her her friends and family, uh, John answered no without any hesitation. Uh, And according to John, it was not until the next day, Uh, when he was with the detectives uh, at the crime scene before the Rasmussens arrived from Tucson, uh, that one of the detectives mentioned that Sherry had been bitten and the possibility that it could be a woman because, according to John, the detective said women bite. And that is what prompted him to uh, bring up the the name of his ex-girlfriend, Stephanie Lazarus and also inform the detectives that uh, Stephanie was an active duty LAPD officer. Uh, But that conversation, when John gave them her name and identified her as a cop, uh, that was not tape recorded. Um, So again, it was uh, was a challenge uh, and sort of a puzzle how I could piece together what happened to the best of my ability, even though, uh, some of the documentation was, was, was lacking. So uh, even with John's polygraph, uh, uh, the Rasmussen told me that they recall hearing about John uh, uh, failing a polygraph exam uh, the week immediately after Sherry's murder, according to the LAPD's records and detective Mayer, who was involved in the polygraph, uh, that did not take place until several weeks later um so it seems that john was not asked any questions during the polygraph about stephanie lazarus his relationship with her any contacts that she had with uh sherry prior to the murder um and all this documented in the uh detectives uh, notes and reports is that John was unable to complete the polygraph because as you said uh, he was too emotional Um, why John was too emotional uh, whether they drew any conclusions from that uh, why they decided uh, not to give it another try after he calmed down uh, there's not really uh, easy answers to those questions uh, because uh what I included in the book is sort of the limit of the information that was documented by detectives at that time. And it's very hard in 2019 to uh, go back and say conclusively, this is exactly what happened in uh,
0: February 1986, more than more than 30 years ago. Right. Let's use this as an opportunity, just not for a second, to talk about our sponsor, FabFitFun. The 2019 FabFitFun Post-Spring Editors Box is on sale now. Treat yourself with items in it such as the Murad Renewing Eye Cream and Diff Crew Sunglasses. Do you love discovering new products? Are you a beauty and fashion maven constantly on the hunt for the next best thing? Ever read about or spot something online that you've always wanted to try but never have? Then you must try FabFitFun. FabFitFun allows women everywhere to discover new products as well as including rave review. Must have brands that you know and love. Forget flowers. FabFitFun is all you need to make this Mother's Day magical. A gift that your mom is guaranteed to love. Lisa, my wife, is always looking forward to her next FabFitFun box. She's always impressed. She's always surprised. And she's always very pleased with everything that she gets, all the special gifts that she gets and experiences in each box. These are full-size products, no samples of anything, and the 2019 post-spring bo- editor's box total retail value equals $238 to $340. It's great for discovering new brands and products. What a better way to shop. Talked about the the gift that she got was an opal rose necklace from Etika, and also a summer and rose trinket dish, great for jewelry. Sign up. For FabFitFun today. These boxes always sell out. My Use my code MURDER to get $10 off your first box. Go to FabFitFun.com to sign up and start getting the box for a life well lived. Use promo code MURDER to get $10 off your first box. That's over $200 for only $39.99. Go to FabFitFun.com and use my code MURDER to get $10 off your first FabFitFun box. Now, Matthew, we we spoke about the murder book and the investigation with Lyle Mayer and his idea and other officers in homicide and LAPD that this was a burglary gone mad, uh, gone bad, I should say. And this case, needless to say, we have to say goes cold. Despite uh, everyone's suspicion that John may have known more, that's what Nell's uh, Sherry's father felt that John knew something, knew more, and that Stephanie Lazarus was a good suspect. And Nels and Loretta and their family did not want to give up. And you also introduced some other characters that were friends of Sherry's that were never interviewed in 1986. Uh, tell us how this case proceeds despite it going cold. What happens to renew this case and when? Yeah, so uh,
1: li- like you said, the Rasmussen's uh, did what they could at the time. Uh, uh, many, many conversations, follow up calls, uh, meetings with the detectives, uh, letters uh, that they sent to uh, the LAPD's chief of police, Darrell Gates, uh, to the media. Uh, you know getting a, a $10,000 reward for information together uh nothing that they did uh um served to advance the investigation so uh within a few years uh most acti- most investigative activity on Sherry's case had had ceased and it was not until uh, you know more than 20 years later in uh 2008 2009 timeframe uh, that the case lands back at the Van Nuys division and is reopened by a uh, detective uh, whose name is Jim Nuttall uh, who has no idea what he's getting into when he uh, opens up this uh, old murder book and uh, notices that there is a DNA report from a few years earlier indicating that, uh, that the person who bit Sherry Rasmussen in 1986 is female. That's all that he knows uh, from the uh, DNA report uh, when he opens it. But it was enough to uh, catch his eye and make him sit up straight in his chair because, uh, first of all, very, very few um, homicides are committed by women as opposed to men. And this was a particularly violent and brutal crime and everything, uh, in the chrono and the murder book, uh, to that point, uh, apart from the DNA report, uh, indicated that the, uh, the prime suspects and the only suspects in this murder, uh, were these, uh, male, uh, burglary suspects who were never, uh, identified or, or arrested. Uh, so just, just from the fact that, uh, he had female saliva on the arm of the murder victim uh, told uh, Nuttall that uh, something here doesn't line up. Uh, There must have been a wrong turn taken at some point. And and that's what inspires him to uh, go back and, and reinvestigate the case from, from the very beginning.
0: What's interesting too, we didn't mention it, but I thought it's worth mentioning because it's a very strong visual is that He's sitting in the Van Nuys uh, station, and from out of nowhere, this box appears with a murder book for the Rasmussen case, and then another one, uh, Kathy Braley. I Braley.
1: Yeah. So there were, uh, I, I write about two two different cases. You know, Probably 90% of the book is about uh, the Sherry Rasmussen case, but mm-hmm. in the course of my research, I learned that there was a separate murder. I'll just give a very uh, thumbnail. Uh, sketch of it. Um, uh, uh, Two years after Sherry Rasmussen was killed in Van Nuys, there was a woman, a 26-year-old woman named Catherine Braley, uh, who was uh, murdered. Uh, And uh, similar to Rasmussen, there were some uh, law enforcement uh, persons of interest in that case. Uh, And the team of detectives who investigated that case was there was a lot of overlap with the detectives who investigated Rasmussen and and more than overlap, uh, really, you right. know, the, the same people, both of the detectives involved in Rasmussen were also involved in the investigation of Kathy Braley's murder. And to this day, Kathy Braley's murder remains, uh, unsolved. Her family and friends are, are still waiting for, uh, justice and answers about what happened to her. So, um, Back in 2008, Nuttall, you know, Jim Nuttall uh, was part of the Van Nuys Homicide Unit, which, again, is not the most glamorous area of L.A. by a long shot, Uh, uh, sort of off the beaten path and kind of forgotten uh, way out of the limelight. Uh, He was not a cold case detective. Uh, His primary responsibility was to solve fresh murder cases. But all homicide detectives are encouraged between fresh cases to try to go back and look at old cases not only uh to do that for for the families uh that are still waiting for answers but as uh you know it's it's the best way to learn how to be a homicide detective i've been told by many homicide detectives is to go back and read uh read the old murder books and so i think it was sort of in that spirit that uh you know, in 2008, Nuttall came into work and discovered that someone had left next to his desk a unmarked cardboard box that contained the murder books for two cases, uh, both unsolved at that time, Sherry Rasmussen and Catherine Braley. And uh, Nuttall did not realize the significance of either case uh, at the time, or he probably would have uh, gotten to it sooner. You know, He had other cases to work, and he ended up uh, basically just uh, keeping holding on to the box for safekeeping uh, for more than a year uh, before he finally had the opportunity to, uh, to dig into them. So it was in early 2009 that he pulled the Rasmus and murder book and pretty quickly uh, discovered that there was information here that he could work with. Uh, and it did not take him uh, and his squad mates. It was a group of uh, four detectives, including Nuttall, uh, Pete Barba, Mark Martinez, and Jim Nuttall were the, the, uh, the rank and file case carry detectives. And then their supervisor was uh, a more experienced uh, uh, detective. Uh, the homicide coordinator is, is, is the, is the name of the position. Uh, his name was Rob Bob, but it was just these four detectives who uh, uh, were working together when Nuttall Uh, reopened the case, saw the female DNA report. And then within not very long, you know, a matter of of days, maybe a week or two tops, uh, you know, they had developed a list of five different women in Sherry's life who may have had, uh, you know, either the motive or the opportunity to harm her. Um, And they're feeling Pretty much right away, based on the crime scene photos, uh, the violence Sherry was subjected to, uh, that this was not a a burglary at all, that the crime scene had been staged to look like a burglary, but that the motive uh, was far more likely to be uh, personal.
0: You write about a, a particularly heroic and dedicated person in law enforcement or outside of law enforcement involved with law enforcement named Jennifer Francis and Jennifer Francis speaks with Nuddle but Jennifer Francis and this and her connection to this case and the DNA happens before this tell us this remarkable person Jennifer Francis and her story
1: Yeah Jennifer Francis is is
0: you know there's there's
1: there's not too many heroes in this story uh, over 30 years but uh, she is certainly one of them Uh, She's a civilian crime lab analyst for the LAPD. She continues to work there to this day. Uh, Back in around 2003, so five years before this box arrived in Van Nuys and Nuttall took possession of the murder book, uh, Francis was assigned uh, the task of testing evidence in Sherry Rasmussen's murder. Uh, The LAPD had formed a, a cold case homicide unit in 2001. Uh, where they basically screened thousands of unsolved murders dating as far back as the 1960s uh, looking for cases that had a good potential um, for some of these new scientific uh, tools and advances that had come along since the murders were committed. So uh, DNA, fingerprint databases, ballistics databases, none of those things existed uh back in like the 60s and 70s uh and even you know it took took some time for them to be adopted into the 80s so uh she received this case not really knowing very much about it Uh, i'm skipping over some stuff that's in the book but uh don't want to spoil everything but uh, Frances obtains uh uh several evidence samples and when she tests them uh she expects that she's going to find blood uh, from the suspect, but all of the DNA results match Sherry's own DNA. Uh, So all of the blood that was found and collected at the crime scene in 1986 turns out to have been uh, the victim's blood, no blood from a suspect. So in reviewing the, uh, the case file, Francis notices a reference to this bite mark swab. It was taken in 1986. And even though she's not a detective, she's a crime lab analyst and a civilian. She is able to put two and two together and realizes, well, uh, people don't bite themselves. And so if I can get that bite mark swab, that is going to give me a good chance of getting the suspect's DNA rather than the victim's DNA. So it was really just her tenacity, dedication, thinking outside the box, not giving up on this case that she easily could have just uh, set aside because there were other cases waiting for her attention. But uh, she ultimately sets in motion the events that um, lead to this bite marks swab being unearthed from uh, the freezer where where it had been for more than 20 years. Uh, She tests it, and uh, she's the one who was the first to know that the person who bit uh, Sherry Rasmussen was a woman. Uh, so she had her own suspicions based on that, that the motive, uh, may have been personal, um, for reasons that are still a little bit, uh, murky that I hope I'll be able to, um, nail down one day. Uh, she reported that information to the cold case detective who was assigned to investigate. And, uh, uh, but the case was not, uh, pursued no specific female suspects were pursued uh at that time uh the case pretty much went dormant again uh and it was not until 2009 when nuttle and his squad mates in van nuys reopened it and started talking to jennifer francis that uh the case picked up momentum uh and the rasmussen's you know finally got the justice they had been waiting for
0: a big part of this book is is the really heartbreaking uh, you know story of Nells and Loretta and Connie and her sister, but Nells and Loretta, and especially Nells, really fighting and really not wanting to give up and being persistent is part of this story, isn't it? And when this detective Nuttle got a chance to talk to Nells and Loretta and then some of the friends that like People like Sylvia that uh, Sherry worked with at the, at the hospital. Um, what did Detective Nuttall get to hear from those people, whereas many of those people were never interviewed or the interviews with Nels were not recorded? What well, you, again, your listeners, you can try to maybe try to put themselves in the
1: shoes of Detective Nuttall. So he picks up this case, he knows nothing about it, uh, he sees this DNA report. It strikes him immediately that it's very unusual that it would be a, a, a woman uh, DNA, female DNA donor as a suspect uh, when he speaks to John uh, and asks him, if, uh, were there any women who uh, may have wished to harm Sherry before she was killed? He immediately brings up the name of Stephanie Lazarus, describes her as an LAPD officer and tells Nuttall that. Uh, He informed detectives of her in 1986. Uh, Nuttall has all the records in front of him and there's no record of that. Uh, Then, you know, some days or weeks later, as the investigation proceeds, uh, he has his first conversation with Nels Rasmussen and poses a similar question to him. And Sherry's father says, I know who killed my daughter. he does, you know, the, 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 one of the issues is that the Raskins never had Stephanie's name. Uh, they knew that, uh, there was an ex-girlfriend of John's who was an LAPD officer and they tried to get John to tell them her name. Uh, but they never got that information in, in 86. So they did not have that piece of, uh, information about her, but uh Nels couldn't have been clearer in that initial interview in 2009 that uh, uh, he had a pretty good idea who may have killed Sherry. And he was not surprised to uh, learn that there was female uh, DNA uh, on her body. What was new, I think, for the Rasmussens and emotional about that moment was that they finally had someone who was listening. Uh, yeah. And wanted to know what they had to say, rather than telling them, uh, we don't uh, care about the information you have, we're telling you what happened. I mean, the Rasmussen's were literally told, uh, or they told me that they were told things uh, like, you watch too much television when they tried to tell detectives in 1986 that there was a a female cop who had threatened their daughter. Um, So I tried to have empathy for everyone in the story, uh, even including Stephanie uh, and John and the detectives. Uh, But yeah, the, the, what, what Nels and Loretta Rasmussen have been through over the last 30 years is incredibly tragic. And it's all the more tragic that, uh, you know, the, 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 there's never been any sort of accountability, um, Uh, you know, all the information that they've got and they, they had to fight for. Um, And so for me, one of the big reasons to write this book uh, is to, is to, you know, try to give them answers, obviously not just them. Uh, I live in LA. I want the LAPD to, you know, it, it has a proud, very complicated history as a police department. I want a great police department in my city Um, and so I think when you have a failure like this uh, uh, failing to identify and apprehend a a murderer in your own ranks for more than 20 years it's really imperative to try to look back and say well what what really went wrong here what could be done better you have to you have to take some some lessons from it or else what's to say it's not going to happen again um, so yeah, I, I, I hope my book provides, uh, the Rasmussen's with some measure of comfort that, uh, uh, there are some answers and information out there, uh, uh, that it, the issue wasn't that they were watching too much TV back then. It was that there was, uh, you know, some pretty serious breakdowns in uh, policy and procedure that, uh, caused this thing to drag out for as long as it has.
0: You talk about um, Nels and being frustrated, but it's also very striking that you write in the book that Mayer put in his report almost, literally, blaming Nels for giving advice to his daughter to fight off these attackers, which he then concluded was part of the reason for her demise. And where Nels, as you write in the book, said, I never said such a thing to my daughter nor to the detective. What's the most, one of the most fascinating parts of this? Story in this case is, is how much the reader, despite all of the detail and all of the picking, um, I mean, all of the deep investigation that you've done for this, is how much John knew. You you keep you, you, we did mention that he did mention to the police about the ex girlfriend, but as you write in this book, he omitted some really important details, like having sex with this woman on the verge or right around his engagement and that Sherry knew about this as well. Um, so the behavior, behavior of John is very odd. Yes. And,
1: uh, again, uh, even Nels Rasmussen himself who had a very sort of tortured relationship with John, he's, he was very clear that he does not think John had any involvement in the murder itself. Uh, but he has felt all along that John had that John knew more than he told police or uh, uh, told anyone about uh, who may have harmed uh, Sherry. And uh, part of John's issue is that at various points through the investigation, he was not completely forthright uh, with detectives about uh, his history with stephanie so for instance again uh the night of he's interviewed uh asked are there any ex-girlfriends who might be a problem and he says no and the next day uh he does bring up stephanie's name and that she's a police officer but minimizes the relationship when i interviewed lyle mayer he was very adamant that john described her to to him as an acquaintance not an ex-girlfriend uh uh, Lyle told me that if John had been honest with him about the extent of the relationship, or if he knew any of these, about any of these incidents that Sherry uh, reported to uh, her family, that things would have gone a different way. And again, how, can anyone we're talking alternative history here, like how things may have played out uh, differently. I didn't want to go too down you know, I, I, I didn't want to go down that rabbit hole uh, mm-hmm. because who can say, you know, uh, yeah. uh, things unfolded the way they did. What I tried to do to the best of my ability was uh, stick to either what was documented on paper or what people directly told me or what they testified to under oath. And yeah, there's things that just don't add up. So the Rasmussen's were adamant that they uh, brought up the ex-girlfriend uh, not just once, but pretty much every time they had contact with the detectives in 1986, uh, Lyle Mayer, when I interviewed him was equally adamant that the Rasmussen never mentioned her, not once. Uh, so both of those things cannot be true. And again, uh, uh, it's very hard 30 years after the fact to settle that, uh, conclusively. How can I possibly do that? Uh, I feel like the best that I can do is present the information as objectively as I can and let the readers draw their own conclusions about who, uh, you know, uh, who has more credibility, who may be telling the truth uh, what, what
0: really happened. Mm-hmm. We don't have time and we don't want to give too much away more than we already have, but Needless to say, she was arrested, and and your book chronicles that incredible uh, pursuit to be able to do that as well once uh, Jennifer Francis uh, makes that profile, that DNA profile. But what I wanted to say before I let you go, too, is that in the book is some really stark um, things that happen without conclusion, and one of the things that you include in this is that from 1986 till the present John never called any detective inquiring about the case did he uh
1: yeah you know that's a i don't know that I can go i mean that's a that's a sort of a blanket statement i think there are, he had some contact with the detectives whether john initiated them or they initiated them you you may be right that he uh You know, he may not have initiated uh, contacts himself. Certainly in 2009, it's Nuttall uh, who's calling him. And over the years, it's the Rasmussen's who are uh, going to the LAPD, asking for updates, desperate to keep this thing from slipping into oblivion completely. I think John uh, pretty much decided to move on with his life to the best of his ability. He eventually. uh, had another marriage and children in that marriage. And so, yeah, the all the pushing uh, pretty much from 1986 until the time that the case is reopened in 2009 is coming from Sherry's uh, family, uh, not from John.
0: Right. I want to thank you very much, Matthew, for coming on and talking about the Lazarus Files, uh, a cold case investigation. It's a fascinating book, and uh, I thank you very much for this interview. For those that might want to take a look at um, this book, uh, do you have a website or a Facebook page for this? Can you tell us about that? Uh,
1: yeah, Uh Uh, I'm on Twitter uh, more than Facebook. My Twitter handle is mttmcg. but the website I'd encourage people to check out is the Lazarus which is, you know, the same uh, as my author website. There's a lot more information uh, about the case, other things that I've written about the case and the history of the LAPD cold case unit. uh, And, Again, what I want to stress to your listeners is this is an ongoing story and, uh, I intend to continue reporting it. So hopefully I'll get an opportunity to fill in some of the questions that remain unanswered in the book. And if you, uh, uh, check out my website, MatthewMcGoff.com or the LazarusFiles.com, which is basically the same website, uh, they'll both get you to, to the same information. Uh, um, I hope to, uh,
0: you know, uh, stay on the story and and bring more to light. Well, I want to commend you for this remarkable book, The Lazarus Files, A Cold Case Investigation. And uh, thank you very much for this interview, Matthew McGough. Thank you very much. My pleasure. I really
1: enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for the
0: sharp questions. Thank Thank you. Good night. Good night.